Hello and welcome to episode 57 of The Game Pit. We're back to our picking over the bones format, but Ronan's got news of a slight tweak we're making to it. Yes, instead of having uh, four games that we could go into in depth in each of these Picking Over the Bones episodes, we're actually going to take one game to feature, and beforehand we're going to have a chat about general gaming issues, be it games we've played, something we've backed to Kickstarter, something we've received, news, something we're looking forward to, whatever it may be, and we're also going to be inviting some guests in from time to time, as usual, but possibly more often. And to start us off on the right foot, back in the game pit after... Over a year away, it's Mr. Stephen Paget. I'm delighted to be back here with you two boys, although I think the tuxedo request was um, a little bit over the top. But still, it's your uh, studio, so if that's what you require, that's what I'll wear. If we're going to wear evening dresses, you're going to wear a tuxedo. <laughs> you look very sexy. Always. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's giving out the granny's special sipping juice. Well, you know me, I always take things easy, especially at this time of night. So, thanks, Steve, for joining us. Everyone who's listening, um, let us know what you think about the new format, whether you like it or not. We're going to be sticking to our idea of a less formal rules explanation as well. Keep your comments coming in about that, because we'd love to hear them. And Sean will tell you everywhere we can be found. Well, as always, we can be found on the Dice Tower Network. You can go there for a whole bevy of fantastic gaming podcasts and, of course, the Game Pit. We're also on 2d6.org where you can go for written audio and visual gaming goodness. So I'm cracking off this time around. I'm going to talk about a game themed around sort of an alternative World War II in which the players play as four heroes, part of an elite squad, who are dealing with eldritch, occult, Cthulhu-esque issues which are occurring. And every scenario is set up as part of a three-scenario story. I played the particular scenario, I believe it's scenario seven which is part of the third series of them. And I played it a couple of times, we failed the first time, and made it through the second time. You're fighting against fire fetches, has that kind of uh, demonic theme to this one. And it was interesting, but I'm not sure that I got particularly hooked. Now, firstly, in terms of minis, in a crowded market, the minis were not that great. The fetches we played against were like little blobs of flame, and there were some bone-themed ones. And they looked okay, but they're not going to pull you in to play in the game. And in terms of this particular scenario, the issue is you have eight or nine evil fetches on the board and there are 12 spawn points around the map and you have to go around and you have to flip over the 12 objectives which are the spawn points, so explore the whole map. And every time you kill a fetch though, it instantly reappears somewhere random from the 12. Now it can't appear under your feet if you're standing on a spawn point, but it can appear anyway. It can appear in your way or out of your way, the other side of the map or right next to you and you have no way of knowing it or controlling it. So kind of defeating the fetches you don't really feel like you're achieving much throughout the game and we very much got bogged down towards the end because we're just trying to fight through these endless ways and there's no way of thinning the numbers and making it out you just got to wade your way through 
there was a lot good going for it. I felt like we really had to cooperate as we played. We had to use our individual powers. We had to use our special powers. It's kind of interesting that the cards you get, which are your life, as in Gears of War and other games, can be used as straight-up attacks, but they can be used for special powers as well. And you have to use those special powers cleverly to be successful. So Fire Team Zero. I'd say if you're into this sort of a game, if it... The idea at all appeals to you. Certainly give it a go. There's something there, but I possibly didn't play the best scenario. Yeah, Ronan, I remember when we uh, looked ahead at this one on one of our Treasure Hunt episodes, and we both had reservations whether they could bring it all together. It sounds like they've done a pretty good job, but there's still maybe a couple of flaws there. Yeah, I just I don't think it's presented fantastically, although the maps are clear. They've got kind of obvious coloured borders on them, so they don't look realistic. Um, because the minis don't look that realistic as well, they're not that great, it almost lends it more of a puzzle aspect. It's not as sort of role-play as other minigames are where you become your character. This is much more, oh, I could spawn there, I'll do this, spend your two points. That, that's the feel I got out of it. So what, what's the problem with the minis then? Is it just then they're not very detailed? Pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty much it. The heroes themselves are kind of difficult to tell apart. And then they don't, there's not a lot of fine detail on there. I feel like I could fairly successfully paint them, and that's not a good sign if you're a mini. But the thing about not being able to tell who your character is is always a problem when your minis aren't painted up, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a problem you might come back to. Yeah, I think on it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steve, do you want to bring us on to something else you've been looking at? I've kind of been lusting after um, Star Wars Rebellion. I'd, I wouldn't say I was a massive Star Wars fan, but there's a bit of Star Wars fever going around, isn't there, at the moment, because the movie's just come out. It's very much in everyone's mind. Star Wars Rebellion is another big box fantasy flight game. It's got about 150 minis in it. They say it's two to four players, but it would only be four players if it was in teams. But essentially, so it's a two-player game. One side plays the Empire, one side plays the Rebellion. It's, it seems to me that it's based on an old PC game. There was a PC game called Star Wars Rebellion. Uh, I think it came out in 1997. I think that's when it came out, and I'm showing my age. And I do remember playing it. The cool thing about it is it's, it's kind of um, vast in scope. In other words, you've got the, there are lots of planets and things, planet-wide warfare, but at the same time, you've got all the individual characters. Uh, so there's kind of little intrigues going on with all the characters. From what I can gather with Star Wars Rebellion, the board game, the Empire are trying to track down the Rebels base and the Rebel player. They kind of have little missions to carry out. They get cards which say, if you accomplish this, a little military conquest here, things like that, or kidnap a character there, then they score points. Eventually, if they score enough points, then it means that the all the planets kind of revolt against the Empire, and so the rebels win. So it looks really cool, but there might be some issues with it. First of all, it's Fantasy Flight, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later. I suspect it's going to be a long game. It's also quite expensive, so I'd like to play someone else's copy if you're thinking of buying one, Ronan. <laughs> well, we did talk about this uh, last episode, and Sean expressed his interest. There's been more information come out. I know there's been a couple of preview copies floating around. There's videos come out from Dice Tower. Sean, seen any more information on this? Any further thoughts on Star Wars Rebellion? Yeah, I actually watched that Dice Tower review and uh, saw Sam Healy and Tom Frothing all over it, and yeah, it wet my appetite. So you'll probably be able to play my copy. I'm really up for this. I love that sort of 
hidden base mechanic that's going on the timer looks quite clever the use of leaders in the game that's how you activate all your your troops and you, they follow a leader different types of leaders there seems to be lots of interesting sort of plot lines going on in this game and i am a huge star wars fan so yeah right up my street yeah i think the interest for me comes basically from the star wars theme it's epic it's fancy flight games and it's star wars i'm, I'm pretty much going to pick it up for you steve it is based on the original trilogy how much was that theme important to you in catching your eye uh, yeah, it's definitely, uh, there's a sort of nostalgic element, isn't there? I think that's also, I mean, Star Wars has become, you know, part of the modern culture. But it's the sort of nostalgia thing, not only for the films, but also for the PC game, which I think it seems to be very heavily based on. I just have some concerns about how long it's going to play. And, you know, I like the idea of it. I like the look of it. It all sounds great. But it's just, if it's going to take four hours or so to play, then it's probably not going to be my cup of tea. You want epic in two hours, Steve. You can't have it all. Well, you can you can wish and hope. <laughs> okay, Sean, talking about epic games, talking about the greatest games ever created, what did you want to talk to us about? Well, Ronan, I certainly didn't want to talk about one of the greatest games ever, ever played. Oh, we're going to be uh, there, are we? Straight, straight there, straight there. Sentinels of the Multiverse, which Ronan is famously a huge, huge, huge fan. Greater Than Games have just announced that they are doing the last expansion. So really, I'm just wondering, Ronan, what you feel. Has Sentinels run its course? Should they eke it out a little bit more? Or would another expansion after this be just outstaying its welcome? Seeing someone like Dominion seems to be doing because they Dominion keeps bringing on new expansions way after they said they'd finished, and maybe it's a little bit too much now. But in fairness, Dominion Adventures was actually quite well received, wasn't it? So, um, you know, and if you're a big fan of Dominion, you've gone and got it. In terms of Sentinels of the Multiverse, they've changed up the way it's played in the last couple of expansions, and they've made it instead of fighting one villain you get a villain per hero and you play in a slightly different way and, and they're not as all-powerful and it's more group-on-group group action. And so they've gone in a different direction. I think there was room to explore within that direction. But they've pulled off a really good trick so far in that almost all combinations from across all the expansions work together. And obviously the more they push that and the further they go on, the more likely you are to come across sort of loops and trips and by bringing in the second system where they have to balance all the smaller villains with all the individual heroes I think there's a limit to how much they can go there I think fantastic job so far I'd be happy if they carried on releasing Sentinels on and on and on but there has been a clear story behind everything they've done they've stuck to their guns they've said this is where it's all been leading to and I'm really really excited for Oblivion to see where we go and how it all ends because it's been an amazing journey so far yeah sentinels of the multiverse i've never played it and i've never had the ma the desire to play it I, i'm not a massive superhero fan i almost got the app i thought well maybe i'll explore it a little bit with the app uh, and see if i like it but i didn't even do that i'd say the app is is really good it's and you can play a game much quicker and it's much less fiddly and in terms of first learning how to play I think sometimes the app auto does things for you, so it's harder to get into the meat of what you're doing and why you're doing it and how the best combos work. But in terms of once you're on your feet, maybe you've played the app 10 times or whatever, and you start to get an idea, it takes away a load of the headache of running Sentinels of the Multiverse. I just missed it when it came out. 
I never took the trouble to go back and uh, get involved with it. So the th everyone's got the right to be wrong. Oh no, no, no! I'm definitely right. Spent, I, I heard you <laughs> meant Dominion. It's not like Dominion, is it? What sense of the Marvel <laughs> no, <laughs> Dominion's another great. Well, game. you and me are falling that's out already. Always a matter of opinion, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I surely think Sentinels has got more theme than Dominion anyway. That's that's probably a It certainly has got yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> okay. We're gonna move on to Sean wants to talk about a Kickstarter which is to come with a Sentinels of the Oblivion. This is a Kickstarter which is just delivered. This is Helionox. Now I didn't kickstart it, but I did pick up the box. It's relatively cheap. And it's a suggested one to four player small quick playing deck builder, seeing as we're on that theme based around a sci-fi theme there's different locations within the solar system and you are in a spaceship each character and you are flying from location to location and you're looking to utilize the special power each location of the five of them has got a special power you're looking to in the standard sort of deck building way use money to buy better cards cards come from four different schools there's one of each school face up ready to be bought as well as some basic cards you can buy those and add them to your deck. There's also a second currency, which is defense, and you're using defense to deal with events which will occur at the systems, and they'll shut down the systems and prevent you from using the special power on there. So if there's something going on at the, the lunar base, you cannot use the lunar base until the event that's there has been dealt with. You do get one turn to deal with a pending event. Now, well, the reason why I wanted to bring it up really was because I think they've really done this game a disservice. They've advertised it as a one to four player game. Now, to play with three or four players, you need a second set of the game. So that automatically gets my back up and I say, hold on, what's in this box is not for three to four players. Then the solo game doesn't work very well. It's not set up and it's all about a beat your own score, which is probably my least favourite of solo games. It's like you are going to win, you're going to score a certain number of points, try and score a few more next time. And that just doesn't hook me whatsoever. And the third thing I think they've done with this is that the rule book is absolutely awful. It's eight pages of A5 cut vertically in half. And there's no introduction, there's no setting the scene, there's no telling you the flow of a round. It's just, for such a small little game, if they presented this well and sold it well, I think they could have a hit because under an hour two-player games, we all know there's a huge market out there for it. And... Helionox, I'm sorry, but I think the developers have not done the best by this game so far. There's a decent game in the box, but it's hard to find. It's so annoying when publishers really try and crowbar that player count in. And we've seen it time and time again. Games that just don't work at certain player levels, and they just crowbar the adaptations of the game, or just flat out lie to the public to say it is a three well this one falls under the latter for me is it's flat out lying if you need extra cards to make that a three or four player game and as rona said the solo variant doesn't really work then this is a two player game with a solo variant in the footnote and maybe in brackets can be expanded to three to four players that's what you should be advertising on the box and yeah completely would put me off buying it now and I see. I think they'd be better off doing it. I think they put fewer people off. They've still got the rulebook issue. But if they said this is a two-player deck builder which works, and there's a bit of conflict, and there's a little bit of beating each other to the punch to deal with these events and score points, the market's there for it. Why? You know, it's got that kind of kickstarted, messy feel to it that we're trying to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks instead of being clear and focused. And this is our product. Uh, this one Kickstarter. I mean, I 
I do sort of flirt with Kickstarter here and there, but I've, this, I've, I've never heard of this before. Um, is it out retail now? Is it in the shops? It's in the shops, yeah. It's only 16 or 17 quid. It's it kind of what the reason I picked up it was there by the till. I'd heard of it. I like the idea of a quick deck builder, which was two-player, and so I jumped. Yeah, another deck builder. Yeah, do we need another deck builder? That's also a question we could, <laughs> we could discuss at some length, isn't it? I missed it on Kickstarter. I didn't know it was out in the shops now. I don't really regret that. I don't care. <laughs> Fair enough. The box looks like a sort of anime. The does it come with that? Doesn't come with that play map, presumably, right? No. No. So it's like looks like anime. Is it Japanese anime sort of style? Yeah. Actually, I quite like the artwork. I quite like the theme behind it. I like the different schools. When, when you start off, you're one of nine different roles. Whatever colour you are, you, you and and they give you special powers in your initial starting deck, and they push you in a certain direction. There's, there's a lot to like in the game. It just kind of irritated me off the bat with the rulebook and, and the silly marketing. Yeah. One to four on the box, but it actually only supports two players out of the box. Well, it's one or two, but one is rubbish. <laughs> right, but it says two to four. So Sean's right, yeah. they're just lying. Yeah, they, they are, and it's it's not good. Anyway, moving on to something I think has had a more positive reaction. Mr. Stephen Padgett has been looking at a Stefan Feld game for quite a while, and he's taken the plunge. So, Amerigo, yeah. So, I'm, I'm a pretty... You know, I'm a I'm a fan of Steffenfeld all the way back to um, in the year of the dragon. It was my first kind of uh, introduction to to him as a designer. I remember the pain you inflicted on me within the <laughs> well, year of the dragon when that, it came. That out. is something with his games. New players will struggle against an experienced player, pretty much in all of his games. But I, I think with year in the year of the dragon, that's really magnified. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so Amerigo. So I didn't pick it up because there was talk of it being quite light, and then there was some controversy about the uh, famous tower. So Amerigo is about discovering the new world and you can score points for all sorts of things as you always can with Steffenfeld games. You know, landing on an island, placing buildings on an island, collecting resources, then you can get multipliers for the resources. And your actions are determined by a, a cube tower which was first used in uh, Wallenstein and also used in Shogun. So what happens in Amerigo is there are coloured cubes and each colour represents a different type of action. And there are seven of each of these cubes. And at the beginning of the game, you drop them all into this tower. And quite a lot of them come out, but the tower retains some. Then you divide all the cubes into their individual colours. And they're placed on a big wheel. And you start off with the blue cubes at a particular point on the wheel. And you drop the, the blue cubes into the tower. And some of the blue cubes will come out, but they'll probably dislodge some of the cubes that were already in there. So you'll get a selection of colours that fall out. And each colour is an action. And so... Each player can then take an action of one of the colours that have dropped out and the number of action points they get to spend is the greatest number of a particular colour that dropped out. So if you had four blue, a yellow and a brown, then you could do a four point action in blue, yellow or brown. And the actions are things like sailing your ships or planning, which means you take a, a building tile or building, which means you put the building tile on the board. There's quite a lot going on, and I, I didn't think that it was light at all. I really enjoyed it. The reason I picked it up, I was sniffing around it, sniffing around it. It was about 50 quid, which I wasn't prepared to pay just to try it and see if I liked it. No one seemed to have a copy. So it seemed my only choice was to pick it up myself. And then it suddenly, the price dropped on Amazon down to about 30 quid, 31 quid, something like that. 
and I had a free trial of Amazon Prime, so it meant I got free delivery. So I jumped in and got it, and I'm really glad I have, and I'm looking forward to playing it more. I've actually even got one of the little, there are three little mini expansions, so I've already picked one of those up. It's unusual for a Queen game to be getting squeezed the life <laughs> out of the money. It's a nice production. I mean, there's also, there, there were some issues about, oh, it looks, looks a bit bland. It does, I suppose. I mean, it looks better in the flesh than it looks in photographs. The colours are a bit muted, a bit like uh, Castles of Burgundy, I suppose, that sort of muted palette of colours. I, I quite like it. I think it looks nice. You could, there's lots of components in the box. I, uh, I might ask Sean to comment there on the looks of the game. <laughs> I, was, I was politely waiting my turn there. We saw this, was it two or three years ago it came out in Essen? And we were kind of excited about it. It was obviously a Feld release, so you're always going to take notice at Essen of the Feld, big Feld release. But yeah, Steve, I thought it looked hideous. Absolutely hideous. There just seemed no rhyme or reason to to the board. Everything just melded into one. And yeah, I just didn't like the look of it at all. And as shallow as I am, that probably played a big part in me rejecting it as a as a possible purchase at that Essen. And the, you're right, the price tag was quite big. And it, it comes in a fairly substantial box as well. Uh, so all those things combined, I just thought... Phew, and maybe not for me, but I'm glad you enjoyed well, it, and I'm, I'd love to give it a go. When it comes to the look of it, the board is modular, so it's made of tiles, which is good because it means different sizes for different play accounts. It's quite plain, but that really helps in play. When you start putting your buildings down, it's quite easy to see who's got what, who's where and so on. It quite helps. And then there's not much else to it, really. There's, there's, there's the board where you put cubes, and once again, it's fairly practical. I agree, it's not a massive looker, but... I think the components look better in the flesh, as I said, than they look in pictures. It sort of helps the functionality of the game. It's easy to sort of see what's going on. Yeah, this and Rialto, I think. But being a bit of a Feld fan, these are the two that I, I think I'm as shallow as Sean on this. The looks have put me off the two of those games. I, I'm happy to try Amerigo. I've always been waiting for you to buy it because I know it's been on yeah. your list for so long. The only time it's been in front of me, I go, oh, no, I still <laughs> pick it up. And yeah, finally you have. So very much willing to come and give it a go and be proven well, yeah I think you will be it's a good game good alright Sean now you're going to talk about a good game that horrific things have been done to well Ronan the Nuremberg Toy Fair is ongoing at the moment and one of the I will say some of the more interesting releases that have come out from it is a, a version of Pandemic and it's going to be Cthulhu Pandemic so mm. as, as a big Lovecraft <laughs> fan <laughs> as a big Lovecraft fan number one I'm getting fed up of Cthulhu and Lovecraft being pasted onto everything that will stand still long enough for it to be pasted onto but Cthulhu Pandemic what well, that is surely just trying to eke the last penny out of a pandemic. Yeah, so this Cthulhu, now, I, as far as I understand it, has, has Cthulhu sort of become public domain? You don't have to pay any licensing rights for it, right? Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Same ah, well, and that explains it, doesn't it? So it? Because it's popular and you don't have to pay for it. So, uh, yeah, stick it onto anything you can because some suckers will buy it. I won't. It might explain it, but it doesn't justify it. <laughs> this is, um, I am torn apart by the very idea of this pandemic Woohoo! Oh. I, I genuinely well, can't believe they've done has uh, Matt Leacock got anything to do yeah, with it yeah it's Matt well it's hard to tell in it it's like we were talking about Star Trek Frontiers weren't we that it says Vladisha Vattel's a designer here it says Matt Leacock's a designer but 
because it's based on his system, I think he has to get that recognition. Uh, so I don't know whether he is actually involved with this. I can only hope not for his soul because I am fed up of seeing Cthulhu everywhere. Just go away. I'll probably still buy it and I'll feel bad for doing so. So Pandemic, do, do, you, know, do you know anything about it? How's it going to play? Is it just going to be pretty much the same except instead of uh, plagues and viruses, we've got old ones and some unpronounceable things with lots of THs in them? To be honest, Steve, <laughs> I saw Pandemic Cthulhu and my brain just went into freeze mode. I'm not sure exactly how this is going to play, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to avoid it like the plague because I didn't really like the base game of Pandemic and I'm getting bored of Cthulhu on everything. So, another game which is getting a makeover and expansions and has just finished up on Kickstarter, which I backed, is Xenoshift. Now, we talked about Xenoshift Onslaught lots and lots last year. Well, this year we're going to be talking about both Dreadmire, which was the main expansion just kickstarted and successfully, and also they added a second expansion as part of the campaign, which was Immolation. Dreadmire being based on sort of a swamp setting and Immolation being based around a new fire mechanism where the base is on fire and you have to deal with that as well as being attacked. Now, there's a few things got me excited and got me to back this one from Call Mini or Not. I was excited with the new settings. I was excited that they tweaked the rules a little bit to make the game less challenging. Now, everyone likes a challenging cooperative game, but this one may have pushed it too far. There's also a chance as part of the campaign to get the heroes, which were part of the initial campaign but weren't part of the retail version, and they very much tipped the balance back towards the players and gave you a chance of winning with these heroes. So that helped. I'm excited by what's available. So that's kind of the first part and probably the main part of what I'm going to say and saying this is coming. Amazing artwork. It looks great. Looks like they've learned from the mistakes they made in the initial production. However... When I started adding the things in that were with it, and when partway through the, the campaign for one expansion, a whole nother expansion gets added in with Immolation. And then they've made these heroes available. And then there's... I've spent over $100 just as part of this campaign to get the few bits and bobs that I want. I haven't bought the player mats and the extra this and the extra that. I could have gone over $150 with it. And is this becoming a problem with Call Mini or not? In that you start backing something... And then suddenly they just throw so much at you that it's actually quite hard to keep up. It's hard to understand. They, they do this pledge manager where you pay a certain amount of money, then you can pick what you've got. And, and you just questions all over going, how do I do this? And even now, although the campaign is allegedly over, the pledge manager is open. You could have backed for a dollar during the campaign. And then for months afterwards, up that amount to however much you want to buy all the bits and bobs. And... It's almost like they're running a campaign which isn't a Kickstarter campaign, isn't as clear-cut as that, and it's all become quite confusing. So I'm excited about the product. I'm slightly worried about how much extra Call Me Not are throwing at all these campaigns now. Well, Brandon, it can become really daunting when all of this product, as I've found out in the past, just arrives on your doorstep. And most of it, i found, you're never really going to use because it's all just fluff that either doesn't work very well or is just an extra mini for this or an extra mini for that. And you end up thinking, well, I actually really didn't need that in the first place. So as excited as I was for Zinner Shift and really want to play it and want to hopefully play your copy, Ronan, I'm proud of myself because I've avoided backing this one 
largely because I won't give money to Call Mini or not directly anymore because <laughs> of, of what I consider their shady business practices. Yeah, and also because yeah, you just don't know what to get and what not to get and what's going to work. And and as you say, Ronnie, it does get confusing. You could become like a magpie. Everything that's shiny, you want it, but then do you really need it? So yeah, I'm glad I've stayed away from this and hopefully I'll be as strong in future. Well, we were talking about Kickstarter Dungeon Crawls last time around with Paul and we knew that he wasn't going to give them a favourable reception. Kickstarted Deck Builders Steve. Let me let me wonder how this comment's going to go. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I, I, it's not that I dislike all deck builders or at least deck building as a mechanic necessarily. I, I, once again, I haven't played this one. Um, and what you're talking about there, though, seems to, yeah, you can you can get overkill with the amount of stuff they release for some games. It's almost impossible to use it all. I mean, they're equally guilty, aren't they, with um, Zombicide. I mean, the amount of stuff they've released for that, I just, you just have to play that one game all the time in order to get the value from that's included with it and all the expansions and more and more and more and more. They're just milking the cash cow, aren't they? You don't have to spend the money. I can see the counter-argument to it. The, the problem I'll have is that until you've played the game, it's impossible to know which bits really add to it and which bits don't. And therefore, because quite often you can't get these things outside of the campaign, maybe because I'm weak-willed, I feel compelled to back everything just to get the gems out of all the extras. Mm. And I kind of feel like, can't they do that bit? Can't they just hone it down a bit, shine it and say this bit's really good and this bit's really good and and not throw everything at it it's like we've been playing a bit of Rome and Bones considering uh, reviewing it here on the show but what Sean mentioned earlier, he's got a massive box of it and it's just absolutely intimidating, you don't know a game and you open up a box that big and you go whoa, what is this, what is all this stuff? Yeah I can see that, I guess the, they, they don't need to go to the trouble of, of honing it and, and tweaking it and getting just fine balancing it because people are buying all the stuff actually w- one thing about the first xenoshift campaign that they ran was actually one of the more tame campaigns they had a game and they had some extras that were going with it anyway you didn't have to pay any additional for it i mean so yeah you could pay additional for i think it was the the runway trackers and stuff like that but that, that was just fluff that wasn't actually integral parts of the game but what we found out and it seemed to be it was just a case of this is our game go and play it there's nothing really more to it than we're giving you and i can remember us praising that yeah and saying oh you know a clean kickstarter but and those additional things that they just put in as part of the campaign didn't have to pay extra for it some of them were fundamental to our, the way we we wanted the game to play, Roland. Absolutely fundamental to it. It made it actually a hundred percent a better game. Those heroes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's part of the ones why I'm interested in getting this. <laughs> if you've play tested that game, then you know that heroes is going to make that a better game. So put it in. Put it in. If you release the best game you can release first time off that will cut down 50% of your fluff I like, I like Sean getting riled up which is good <laughs> come on but come on it not and he loses the head a bit of blood rage rage where's my game charge me $20 for nothing <laughs> <laughs> so another sci-fi expansion for 
what I think is a really good game, but again, possibly hasn't got the widest exposure, Steam. Yeah, so this is uh, for Level 7 Amiga Protocol, and it's called Extreme Prejudice. So, Level 7 games, there, there are three of them, I think. There's Level 7 Escape, which was the first one, which uh, didn't go down too well. So, essentially, the story is there's a, an alien who's made a deal with the American government because he can provide them with technology, and so they've given him a, a secret base in Area 51, and they keep giving him humans to uh, experiment on. That's basically what happens. And in Level 7 Escape, some of these humans escape. In Level 7 Omega Protocol, the government has to send a, a, a crack elite squad of sort of special forces into the base to, to shut it down and kill everything inside it. It's a 1v all game, so you have players taking on the roles of the uh, elite soldiers, and you have a player who takes on the role of the aliens led by Dr. Kronos. And the interesting part of the system is that the soldiers have to spend adrenaline in order to carry out actions. And then that adrenaline gets passed on to the person who's in charge of the aliens, and he can spend that in order to activate his aliens and spawn more aliens and, and trigger traps. It's a sort of Space Hulk evolved. I was a big fan of Space Hulk. I think I've owned I think it's on its fourth, fourth edition now. I think I owned all th three of them. I haven't got the latest, but it, that's just a reprint of the third. It's a little bit more complex than Space Hulk. I don't know masses about this expansion. The story is something like Dr. Kronos escapes at the end of level seven in Amiga Protocol and goes off to Russia. Essentially, I guess they're just pursuing him. He'll probably have his own base in Russia and it'll be more of the same, but there'll be, there'll be new aliens, new soldiers, new, you know, just more of the same. It's great fun, and I like it so much that I've actually pimped my uh, copy out slightly. We were talking about it earlier insofar as when you've got your unpainted minis on the board, it's difficult sometimes to tell who's who. Well, I've painted my minis for this, uh, but still it wasn't that easy, so I've given all the soldiers a little corner of their base with a colour, and then for their initiative they've got a coloured dice which matches the colour of the base, so you can see who you are pretty easily. And I've also got a few other tokens that you can put down on the board that didn't come with it, which I think they should have included. So I obviously like it quite a bit to spend the extra money and to even paint the minis. So I'm looking forward to this expansion, uh, and uh, I hope it means that I get the base game played more. Ronan's played the original game, and I, if I remember rightly, Ronan, you really didn't take to it. You I, remembered incorrectly. Did I? Yeah, I really liked it. What, the first one? What, Escape? No, you're talking about Level 7 Escape. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, first game, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're not the same game, they're just in the That's same right. series. Yeah, okay. So Level 7 Escape was a co-op game we had to escape, which didn't work very well. And then they released this Tactical Minis game. And then the third one is a strategy worldwide invasion game where you're trying to fight off an alien invasion and you control different areas of the world. And that's really good as well. But what my point I was going to make sure was they were both done a disservice uh, Amiga Protocol and Level 7 Invasion because Escape was the first one to come out and it, it was a bit of a dud. Well, this is why I remember. I remember Level 7 and you absolutely hating it. And I kind of avoided it since then, right up until the point that Steve mentioned that he felt it was on a, a kind of level with uh, Space Hulk. So now my interest is peaked again, Steve. Well done. <laughs> Get in then. We'll have to have a game. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's a bit similar to Fireteam Zero and I think lots of people will lob it into the same area of a minis sort of tactical game you've got soldiers they've got different powers right? there's different themes and the big selling point for Amiga Protocol is that it's all against one 
and it's really interesting the way the alien player can play and what they can prioritise and the traps they can lay. This level seven Amiga protocol is a really good game, and I completely agree with Steve and exactly what I just said to Sean. I think the other two level seven games have really been hamstrung by release of the first one because I remember it got quite a lot of buzz and it came out and it was a huge letdown. If you haven't heard of Amiga Protocol, go and have a look at it and obviously Extreme Prejudice and also Level 7 Invasion. If you like longer, strategic, almost fantasy flight style games in which you're, you're running an economy and fighting an invasion, it's like XCOM but with much more to it and much more thinky and much more planning and much more helping each other out as continents and things like that both of them really really good games I think it's a great yeah yeah thing. come on we need to play it boys we need to play it like all the good games <laughs> we need to play yeah. it more <laughs> Sean is going to talk about a different style of game which he has got me excited about sounds like a good one as well Sean yes Ronan I have recently been finally getting around to playing my kickstarted copy of Tricarian so anyone who doesn't really know what it is, just think of The Prestige, the movie where you're a magician trying to come up with amazing steampunky, all sorts of tricks and perform them. And that's that's what the game is. It's a worker placement game. It has got me really intrigued. I'm not quite at the point where I think actually it's a great game, but every time I play it, I'm discovering more and more to it. And that's in part because there's a, a base game where it's just really a learning game and it takes out some of the more interesting elements of the game just so you can learn it because the rule book isn't great and it's, it's a difficult game to learn anywhere the board although it's beautiful it's not really conducive to seeing things immediately of where you want to place your workers and it's a slow starter as well you start off with just a few workers and you build up and you build up and then you then you realize where the, where the crux of the game is going is that's the actual performance element of it and there's a placement mechanic for the performance and a set collection almost mechanic in there as well so lots going on but then you flip the board over and then you've got additional things that you can add into the game and you've got a whole new area on the board which is the dark alleys part and all of a sudden you've got this quite epic worker placement where you can tinker with what happens each round from round to round you're getting more cards into your hand that are going to affect your worker placement and more theatres to perform your magic tricks in and it's a really interesting game a lavish design every player gets a little handbook full of all the tricks that can be formed and you try and change your tricks together to get the best out of them with your materials that you buy so yeah a really interesting game one that i'm really quite excited to play more but i'm still not tipped over that balance to say it's a great game this is one of those kickstarted games where i had a slight worry it might flatter to deceive because so many people were so excited it looked so good they did such a good job with the presentation it got so much buzz and I, I couldn't see what was unique about it. Is there anything really deeply unique in the gameplay, Sean? I think there is, Ronan. And I think it is that performance element. There, there's all sorts of things that we've seen before, like the worker placement, the gathering materials. But there's lots going on. There's lots of different 
elements to each area you go to like one area you're collecting the results of dice so it's completely random every round but the performance element it's who you bring to the performance who sets up your performance where you place your tricks in what theater there's four types of tricks if you chain two types of the same together there's so much to think about but you don't think that originally when you start playing the game you think yeah there's not much to this and then all of a sudden, someone scores a big point score for performances, and you're thinking, ah, oh, God, they've absolutely slashed me there because I didn't think of that. So now I'm going to think of that next. And then someone does something else, and yet that's the way this game is going at the moment. I couldn't tell you the longevity of it, whether it's going to get boring or repetitive, but at the moment, as I said, I'm discovering new things every time I play it. Did you pick up the Kickstarter version? I did, mate. I picked up the deluxe Kickstarter version. Wow. <laughs> Which actually, it has extra magicians, but you really don't need them. I think the, the base game is absolutely fine for anyone to pick up. Obviously, you went to Essen uh, last year, and Ronan went, and I didn't, and I was sad. I think I was asking you to see if you could pick up a copy for me. They only had the copies available for backers so yeah i picked up my own copy but it's quite funny because they made a massive faux pas and they lost the only spreadsheet of all their backers so they didn't know who picked up games and who hadn't right. so i could have been really dishonest no, and make... picked up a second copy but yeah, i wasn't no, i didn't i haven't picked mine we've seen you three times today. No, different bloke. i mean it speaks to me a little bit because um you know i was always sort of a fan of uh, illusionists and houdini and all that sort of stuff uh, I even have a friend actually who's illusionist, so the theme of it really speaks to me. I love the film The Prestige that you referred to, Sean, too. I'm intrigued to get a game of that. I really would like to have a game of that, so if ever we can manage it, Sean, please count me in. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to talk about on this particular episode is time stories. Now, I discussed the base game in episode 56, and I said I was looking forward to see how the game developed, and I hope that the additional scenarios added something on and developed the ideas therein in the base game. So I've played through the whole of the Marcy case. It did take three playthroughs for us to go through it, and it is different from the Asylum. It's different very much in terms of theme. It brings in some different mechanisms. It's definitely got a different slant away from the uh, pure sort of mystery of Asylum into maybe something slightly more action orientated. And always hard to discuss time stories without spoilers, which is what I'm gonna do. But I can say I really liked it as a step forward. I really enjoyed the change in artwork because everything has got different artists and got different designers as well. I preferred the Marcy case to Asylum. Now, when the Marcy case first came out, I thought it had some slightly negative backlash, but actually, when I played it and I've looked further on, it seems all kind of maybe 50-50, preferring Asylum or Marcy case, and and I'm on the Marcy case side of it, so it's really just a report back to say, I like where they've gone with it, I like how the system has developed, and I have also picked up the Prophecy of Dragons, and I'm very much looking forward to getting that on the table to see if they can do a third unique thing with the system. Because I think if they can put a different spin on it every time, I'll be really happy with my purchase. Don't want to talk about it too much any more than that. I'm pretty sure Sean's going to play them at some point, and we will maybe do a spoilers episode. But for now, just to say, promising developments with the Marcy case. Steve, have you looked at Time Stories at all? Yeah, what I'm waiting for is for people to have played one or two of the um, cases and then 
uh, decide that they don't want it anymore and sell it cheap then I can pick a copy up I knew about it I wasn't I wasn't entirely clear of how it worked and then I've heard people saying it's a bit like the choose your own adventure books I don't know if that's true but I can see that that would be quite fun I'd like to play it I suppose there's a, a problem where you need to be like I couldn't play with you if you've already played through a particular story I'd have to find either one of the new release expansions or, or find a whole new group to play it with so in that sense I suppose it's difficult to get a play of someone else's copy I'm going to keep my eyes open and if I see one for a good price being sold second hand I'll probably pick it up in terms of, of learning it from someone else's copy, Steve, what I'd say is I'm going to Gaming Weekend this weekend and I'm bringing a Prophecy of Dragons with me because I think we'll be able to play that with people who haven't played Time Stories and kind of show them how the system works and that we'll all be able to enjoy that scenario together. And then if they're interested, they can go back and play the first two and pick it themselves. So I think that it works very well like that. The stories don't build on each other to the tiniest, tiniest little degree that won't even matter, trust me. They, they're all episodic at the moment. And in terms of selling second-hand copies, I think that's where my eyes are open. I'm looking at the math trades. I'm looking at the second-hand market. Are people selling time stories? And I'm not seeing it around, certainly as much as I expected it to be, which suggests to me that what they're doing is keeping people hooked. I think you're probably right. It certainly isn't around because I have been looking. What I meant was if it's a scenario that you've already played through, I mean, presumably the one you were talking about, you haven't played yet. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so so that's exactly what I mean. So you, you need to kind of get in at the beginning of one of the stories. So if it's just the one that comes in the base box, for example, you've obviously played that, so I couldn't come over and play that with you. I could, but you've already played through it, so I'm sure... It, we, I don't know. I imagine it wouldn't work because you'd know. No, it wouldn't work. No. no, once you've been through it, you know how it. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of that thing where you just keep quiet and you go, well, "I'll just go here," but you're guiding people. It's a bit of a funny. I, I, I don't think that work. I was just kind of suggesting there is a way we could play the game together. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. In order for you to learn it and what have you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ronan, in the last episode, we talked about this, and you alluded to. Uh, basically saying that the game kind of led you around by the nose and that you were really hoping that the Marcy case didn't do that basically that it didn't show you exactly where to go and everything was scripted almost was that the case or did Marcy case have a bit more freedom built into it yeah it definitely had a bit more freedom there was definitely different ways by which you could achieve an ending i mean there was clear paths to go down but as well as that there were different clues which you had to pick up and what i really liked was there were clues scattered throughout the scenario the same as there was in asylum but they weren't as obvious you weren't getting punched in the face with them and you did have to do a bit of deduction yourself to get the final answer and again you had you had ways of going down different routes there were also really nicely weren't as many dead ends i felt I wasn't just doing something and getting punished by the game for no reason. So, And that was a big improvement. And also, it started with a bang. The first place you go to, things start happening. You're instantly making decisions. In the first scenario in Asylum, you're just kind of picking up some information. You don't really know what's going on. You're not really making decisions. You're just kind of grabbing some info and going, okay, here's some hazy info. Where do you want to go next? Oh, I don't, well, I don't really know what's going on. This one, you go, oh, wow, this is the situation. Here's some things we have to deal with immediately. There are cards that have symbols on them that say, you must come here immediately. You have no choice. And other ones that say, if you don't come here immediately, it's going to get discarded and you'll miss that chance. And even that little thing puts you on, oh, well, what do we do? Because that looks like a pretty bad situation that at least one person has to go and they're going to get stuck in. 
and yet if we don't go to that situation right now we're going to miss a chance so do we risk it with someone I did feel like they did that better that's probably one of the reasons why I liked it more than Asylum stuff good stuff Steve another game that you'd like to talk through with us so what I'm going to talk briefly about is the Conflict of Heroes solo expansion Conflict of Heroes is a World War 2 game two player and uh, I picked it up the first edition gosh I don't know when the first edition came out I picked it up a good long time ago anyway I played a few of the scenarios with Rowan and I played it with various people it's got a fairly shallow learning curve for a sort of war game it's on a small scale like squad base so it's quite good anyway so I went through a period where I was working in the evenings and I wasn't getting very much gaming in so I was looking out for solo games played quite a bit of Mage Knight and when I saw there was a solo expansion coming out for this, I was kind of, oh great, that, I'll get that, that'll be good. And there were rumours going around at the time saying the second edition of the base game came out. And the, and the story was that if you wanted to play the solo expansion, you had to pick up the uh, second edition of Conflict of Heroes. Which I duly did, so I then had two copies. And I also pre-ordered the solo expansion, so I paid kind of a premium because the shipping costs were, were fairly high coming from the States. And then after I pre-ordered it, more information started to come out. said that you wouldn't be able to play the scenarios in the base game. You'd only be able to play the scenarios that came with the expansion. So that was disappointing. And then it went through some sort of uh, development hell where the designer's son came up with some new AI things he thought should be implemented. And it took about, I don't know how many years, it took three years before it was finally released. Anyway, I finally did get my copy of it. And I was very excited to play it. I got my second edition box out, learnt how to play, read all the rules, whatever. And it's an extremely disappointing experience, largely because the much sort of vaunted, clever AI doesn't work. And what you end up having to do is make decisions for it. What's the point of having an AI if you're making decisions for it? I mean, I'm just so disappointed. The, the whole idea is very clever. The solo thing works with cards, a bit like the AI in the Dungeons and Dragons board games where they say, if this happens, this will happen. If it does this, this will happen. You read through a list. The situations that units can be in on the board can become quite complex, and the rules don't tell you how to deal with that. So you're left to sort of make decisions for the AI. Well, I don't need to buy a solo expansion to do that. I can just play against myself. Yeah, I feel a bit cheated. Well, Steve, see, now, now I'm a little bit upset too because while you were talking there, I was just thinking, it's, it's the one of the things I've got hardly any of in my collection is war games. I think D-Day Dice is the only sort of realistic, well, not realistic, but was this Dice, <laughs> <laughs> but based on real events, war game that I actually own. And I've always thought about memoir. If you weren't insane, you'd have Quartermaster General. <laughs> I, was, I was getting to Quartermaster General. Have you seen that there's an expansion up again? Another one? Yeah, it adds in China and yeah, some yeah. other yeah, countries. One, one, for the, yeah. one for the London on board brigade. <laughs> well, to be honest, I actually think that Quartermaster General streamlined as its selling point. If you bring in this second expansion, you have to start deck building and taking cards in and cards out and what have you. And it's getting to the point where I'm like, actually, do you know what? I want the 90 minute six player game. I don't want the two and a half hour six player game. I don't want the deck building beforehand. I'm all right. Yeah. But Steve. Anyway, Conflict of Heroes. <laughs> yeah, so back to the actual game we're talking about. Um, so, Steve, 
Well, I just wanted your opinion, really, on what would be the best game for me to sort of dip my toe into those waters. Would it be something like Memoir 44 or Tide of Iron or indeed Conflict of Heroes? Well, I'm not a... what do they call them? I'm not a grognard. I'm not a war gamer, really. I have got Memoir 44, though. Have you played um, Battle Law? You yeah, I have, yes. Yeah, so you've you basically played Memoir. It's the same. It's just that instead of fantasy figures, you've got tanks and foot soldiers. But it's a pretty decent game for that. I don't know about Tide of Iron. I think Tide of Iron's probably somewhere in between mm, Memoir and Conflict of Heroes. But Conflict of Heroes is actually a very simple system to learn. It's a great two-player game, and I've got a copy. A lovely second edition <laughs> copy, which I didn't need because I already had first edition. <laughs> because the, you actually don't need the second edition to play with this solo expansion. That's complete fabrication. I mean, in the base game of Conflict of Heroes, it starts off with simple scenarios and then it introduces more rules in the second scenario and more in the third scenario and so on. So you sort of learn it step by step and it's not that complicated. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. And it looks pretty good for a, you know, for counters and chits sort of game. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, I did enjoy our games of Conflict of Heroes. They are several years ago now, so I'd be really creaking the rust on the brain to remember anything specific about them. But I enjoyed the kind of smaller level, the fact that each unit counted, the fact that the rules pretty much made sense, like the cover rules and things weren't too complicated. It did develop. I felt like, for me, it developed a little bit too quickly because I really wasn't used to war games at the time and I kind of wanted to play the first and second scenario a couple of times to get my head around it. So I'm not sure it is as easy to pick up as as you're saying, mate, but it is a good game. And I think maybe if someone's enjoyed the likes of Heroes Normandy or something like that, it is along similarish lines, but probably a, a bit more realistic and... Uh, and basically that's it it's it's kind of a small next step along from that sort of a game I, I think Ronan um, you know at the time that we played it you were only sort of just getting into the board game thing weren't you so I think you'd probably find now certainly those sort of games yeah we played loads of Euros and stuff like that but this this was kind of a completely new territory for me. right okay the cool thing about it is that in a lot of war games it's like I go you go so I go I move all of my units and I fire with all of my units and then you do all of your units and it goes back and forth like that whereas in Conflict of Heroes you just move one unit and your opponent then does one unit rather than you taking a whole grand strategic plan you're sort of reacting to what your opponent does it's really good it's a good 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 game yeah come on Sean let's but play. the solo expansion not so much <laughs> well no no the solo expansion didn't do what it said it would do not for me anyway there's lots of questions on, on the geek about um, movement questions and how does this work and how does this movement work and what would this unit do in this circumstance and i think there's a rule in the book i think it's called rule 42 something like that basically saying when it comes down to it you just do the best thing you think for the ai i don't need to buy an expansion to be told make the decisions yourself there's no <laughs> there's no ai in that is there no. Okay, so one to steer clear from, but Sean, let's see us out on this part. Yeah, just very quick. No surprise, given that uh, Raiders of the North Sea was one of my top five games of 2015, that the last in the, the North Sea trilogy, Explorers of the North Sea, is available now, and I have backed it. It is more about the exploration, as the title would suggest, and you're building up your landscape as you go along, and you're, you are doing a little bit of raiding, and you're stealing sheep, and you're 
doing bits and bobs and sailing around the North Seas. But uh, it is a game, as I said, I'm going to go out on a limb. Don't know that much about it yet, but I really enjoyed Raiders. So definitely one for me to look forward to. Also included in the package is what they call the Rune Saga. It's a... A game that combines all the other three games. Now, I'm not sure how that's going to work. It sounds a bit iffy to me, but I'm still going to buy it. Let's let's be serious here. <laughs> and, yeah, so that's going to combine each of the three games, and you're going to have to do tasks in each of the three games. And after after playing each of the three games, hopefully you're able to split them up and not have to play them back-to-back. Then you're going to have a winner, but we'll see how that works. I think this whole Rune Saga idea has got me interested Again, it's part of this campaign legacy system. We're looking for games that affect games upon games. Everyone's looking to do it. But this started a long time ago with Shipwrights of the North Sea, or relatively long time ago. So we can't say the jump on the bandwagon. Very ambitious scope to this, but they've done well so far. So they kind of have the track record to pull this off. And I am very interested in this whole Rune Saga idea. And you brought it to my attention. I'm definitely going to go have a look. Uh, I'm worried about you stealing sheep. <laughs> Not as worried as the sheep are, right? They're that worries friends. me, Sean. They're it's, my friends. Leave them it's alone. an image I don't want. It's an image I don't want in my brain. Oh, sweet Jesus! <laughs> right, so that wraps up our chat about a few different bits and bobs that have been occupying us in the past couple of weeks. We're going to move on to the big review of the show, and it's going to be the Fury of Dracula. Before we move on to our review of Fury of Dracula, Sean and I just want to draw your attention to Codex, which is a new game from Serling Games, which is currently being kickstarted, is running through to Thursday the 3rd of March. This is called a card time strategy. It's a card game heavily based around real-time strategy computer games such as Warcraft 3 and StarCraft. In it, you are going to be starting off a force playing against either another player or in teams or possibly a free-for-all at larger player counts and you're going to be controlling heroes and heroes are going to be going out and leading units in battle against either the units of your opposition or ultimately attempting to destroy their base as you go you're going to be building tech trees of buildings and also where the name codex come from is before the game, once you're into it and playing the advanced version, you're going to build a codex of cards which are going to be available to just you for the game. And after each round, you're going to add two of these cards into your deck so it allows you to set a strategy before you play but then adjust the conditions you face as you're playing. Now, we have been sent a preview copy of this by Serling Games. We have been playing around with it and let me tell you, we are honestly both very impressed so far. We certainly hope to get it to the table some more and give you some more thoughts before the Kickstarter campaign campaign finishes but if anything i've said has rattled your cage or caught your attention please go and have a look on kickstarter and if you want to know more there is a great video from rodney smith on watch it played available on board game geek and youtube and that's a free plug for him go have a look and that gives you in under 10 minutes a great overview of what codex is all about thanks a lot So our big review for this episode is The Fury of Dracula. 
Now into its third edition, which came out in 2015. The listed designers are Frank Brooks, Stephen Hand and Kevin Wilson. This is from Fantasy Flight Games. It's a two to five player game with a listed play time of 120 to 180 minutes, two to three hours. That will be discussed, I imagine, at some length. So, what is the game? The game is played on a board which displays a map of Europe. And Dracula is going to start at a secret location on one of many cities set out on the board, which are linked together via roads and railways. There are also a few sea areas around the edge of the board. No matter how many players are playing, there will be four hunters. Now, it's going to be played over the course of three weeks, really, is maximum. It might go one or two turns past three weeks, but not longer after that. And for each day in those three weeks, there are two major phases with a couple of minor phases in there and that's day and night and each day each of the hunters is going to take an action including the ability to move around the board via railways or roads or sea and then at night time they're going to take another action and at the end of the night Dracula is going to make his move he moves in secret he picks a location he slides it onto a board called the trail which is going to be up to six cards long once you get past the sixth round and he is keeping track of his own location and the hunters are wandering around if the hunters ever wander into an area which is still on the trail so it has to be a city, sea areas don't count they're slightly different but if they walk into a city that is still on the trail Dracula must flip over that card Dracula also gets to put encounter cards with these location cards as he's moving around and he has the choice of ambushing the players when they wander in there and there's various effects be they bats, rats, vampires, fog, different things that are going to attempt to hamper the hunters in their movement. Within the three weeks Dracula is attempting to get to a number of 13 corruption. He's going to do this by biting the hunters, sending them back to hospital by putting vampires into the areas where he's moved through and uh, getting them off the end of the trail so for six turns keeping them secret and the hunters not found them and they will mature that will score him some points and then if he managed to stay alive and keep his 15 health going through the end of the third week he's going to score five corruption every day that he moves which is basically he's going to end the game very quickly at that point unless it's a, a very teetering on the edge sort of a game this is based on an earlier design it's been revamped given some fantasy flight chrome so fantasy flight sean is here one of the first things we have to talk about is sean the presentation of the game how did it look to you well, I actually really, really liked it. I thought it looked really thematic. It brought me back to that sort of Bram Stoker world of Dracula. And I thought, in general, it was a big improvement on the second edition. The board in the second edition didn't look as thematic, not as immersive as this one. I think all the card art is, is really nice. The only thing I didn't like was the, the box cover. I thought uh, Dracula looked uh, a little bit camp, a little bit... Uh... He, he looks like Liberace, come on. He looks <laughs> like Liberace on the box. I was actually thinking he, he, he looked like he was on stage in La Caja Fall, saying, I am what I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, he could well be on his weekends off, who are you to judge? <laughs> okay, so apart from Liberace on the cover, what do you think of the presentation, Steve? I think it looks fantastic. Yeah, I really like it. It's Fantasy Flight, so, you know, they always do good productions. I know people have complained about the board's a bit dark. I like the board. It should be dark. It's a dark sort of subject. I think the board looks fantastic. It's sort of very evocative. Card art's excellent. I mean, 
there are some issues I think with uh, but it's more functionality than presentation with some of the with keywords missing on cards and things yeah I think it looks lovely you know the miniatures could do with painting and I fully intended to paint mine but as we go through this uh, little talk we may find that that might not happen <laughs> for various reasons yeah so each of the hunters is represented by their own little figure and Dracula is represented by a figure but it only comes on the board if he is actually discovered and yeah I think you kind of get used to figures but they're pretty small they're all dark grey maybe not the clearest to tell the difference in so it does look good and you'd expect that from Fantasy Flight great quality components there are two obviously distinct teams here. Dracula plays his own game and the Hunters are playing a completely different game and the, the twain may meet. So we're going to talk about the Hunters. What they have to do, how they move around the board, how exciting is it, how many decisions have they got to make and what is it like playing as the Hunters? Sean? A range of actions you can do. So the movement, you can go by road, railway or you can go out into sea. But the road movement is fairly simple. You just move from city to city, fair enough. But I didn't like the actual railway tickets in this. They didn't seem like they worked. I think people have had a, a bit of an issue about how they've changed them slightly for this edition. Uh, people say there's more freedom in the second edition. And, and that's why I thought would be better in this one. The way they work, you buy a ticket, you spend an action, uh, a valuable action, to buy a ticket. Now that ticket can move you one space on certain tracks you've got a yellow and a white track uh it can move you up to two spaces on one of the tracks and you've got a choice of usually yellow or white and whatever's the going to provide you with the most movements is probably what you're going to take but i just didn't think that was thematic at all surely if you're buying a train ticket you're going to buy it to a destination you want to go to if you're unlucky enough to turn over the one and one well then you could have just used one of your movement actions to do that anyway you're not going to buy an unlucky train ticket that doesn't go where you want to go you clearly don't commute to work, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't like that aspect of it. But, uh, yeah, the movement's fine. The, sometimes the um, rail ticket that only takes you one space can still get you further than uh, going by road. There are lots of places where just moving one... Sometimes it, yeah, can. it can. Sometimes it can. But it's still, it's still... It didn't feel like I was actually using an action well when I turned over those one and one. Well, let, let me uh, let me pull you up on something there. I think um, you said it's one of your valuable actions. I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think the actions are that valuable and I don't think there's a lot to do for the hunters in terms of actions. And I'm going to come back to this theme as we go through chatting about it. One of the main things you can kind of do is take a ticket, right? Quite often you're going, oh, I'll take a ticket, I'll take a ticket. There's not much else to do. It's almost like a default nighttime thing to do. And then the reason you're disappointed is because it's a bit useless. But if it was a kind of throwaway action or, or just something you do now and then, fine. But because there's so little for the hunters to do other than move, have I hit the trail, yes or no, that's when it starts getting interesting. Outside of that, the, the tickets are disappointing because what else do I do with my time? We haven't really elaborated on the night and day move. So you get to perform more actions and you can only move in daytime unless something else some in-game effect tells you otherwise your night time is going to be spent picking up supplies really or if you happen to be in the same city with another hunter maybe you're going to trade or rest if you need the health but yeah there's not a whole heap i think the special actions do add to that each hunter has their own special action so i think yeah if you use those wisely but yeah i think you're probably touching on the, in the right area there Ronan in that you, 
the hunters can feel a bit limited in what they can actually do. As far as I understand it in the second edition, the travelling uh, by rail was decided by dice and uh, you could actually roll the dice and not be able to move at all. So that's even worse, I suppose, than what they've got here. So I imagine the reason that they've got the variable numbers on the tickets is so that's because the tickets are kept secret from Dracula, which means Dracula doesn't have, he doesn't know exactly how far the hunters are going to be able to move, whether they're going to discover him or not. So he can't plan exactly. I think that's why they've kept variable numbers and they're, and they're secret. I do agree with you, Ronan, that um, not only for the hunters, but also for Dracula, there's not a huge amount to do. Okay, we'll get on to Dracula. So one of the other key things people do, well, the three main actions really are move, take train tickets, and then this one of supply. When you do a supply action, as long as, if you're in a larger city, which more than half the cities on the board are, you're going to take an item card and an event card. And if you're in a smaller city, you're just going to get an event card. Now, if you do it during the daytime, rather than moving, that's all well and good. You get to draw from the top. The item card's always beneficial to you. And we'll come back to those again in a second. But in terms of the events, the events can be beneficial to the hunters or they can be beneficial to Dracula. If you are doing a supply action during the day, you can see the back of the card on top of the supply deck and you can see if it's good for the hunters or good for Dracula. If it's good for hunters, you can draw it. If it's good for Dracula, you can throw it away. If you choose to do supply at night, you actually take the event card from the bottom of the deck and you can't tell whether that's going to be go straight to Dracula as a good thing for him or it's going to be beneficial to you. So it's a risk. So it's another thing which puts pressure on those rail tickets to be useful because you need to move to get the trail. So that's mostly going to be actually during the day. And then doing your other main action, which is supply, at night is risky. And you may be handing an advantage over to the Dracula player. And that kind of, oh, is it worth making that risk? Is it worth handing something over? Are the events, they some of them can be good, but certainly once you get a handful, because most of the characters only have a hand limit of three, once you have three, you don't want to supply. Doing train tickets is a bit rubbish. You can't move at night. I'm harping on a theme, aren't I, Sean? I think there is a limit to what you can do. But I like that mechanic where you can take a risk at night. And it is thematic because Dracula is stronger at night. So the agents and minions of Dracula are afoot. More likely to draw one of your own events. But obviously Dracula's events are in that deck. So you might hand him something important. So yeah, I, I like it. I, I think it's quite exciting and it's a nice cool part of the game. Yeah, I, I think that's a good mechanic. I, I, I think I agree. It's thematic. Yeah, you're safe in the daytime, but if you're out and about at night uh, uh, trying to get yourself kitted out, then you're taking a risk, and that's kind of represented by the fact that there's a possibility that Dracula's going to get a card. Th those event cards are powerful cards. They're game-changing cards, I think. Yeah, they can be, but it's part of the whole swinging nature of the game, isn't it? Again, I think I don't mind the mechanism within itself in terms of you're taking a risk. I just feel like it's almost a default to do. It's one of two options. So... I'm kind of forced to do this even though I don't want to. I skipped actions on nights quite often with Hunters because I was like, I, I don't want to take a risk. I've got plenty of cards. I don't care. I don't need more train tickets. I'm going to go to sleep tonight. Okay, moving on from that though, that supply action, you're going to get items. And again, you've got a hand limit of three for most of the Hunters. One of them's got a limit of four. Steve, do you think the items are varied enough to warrant constantly trying to cycle through to find something? My experience of the game, when it comes to the item cards, they they may have different names, but they often have the same effect. There's a lot of combat cards in that in that deck. We'll talk about combat later, but there are icons on the cards which you kind of 
when you play them, the hunters are hoping to match an icon that the, on the card that Dra Dracula's played. So you might have some variation in the icons, but generally, I, I think once you've got your three cards, you're you're pretty sorted, and um, there's not really much incentive for you to continue drawing them. I think it depends on how quickly you get those three cards. Yeah, if you get exactly what you're after within the first four or five draws of the cards, yeah, fair enough, you're going to be set for the rest of the game. But there are cards that benefit certain hunters slightly more than the rest of the gang. And they yeah, they may want to recycle through their deck just to try and get those into their hands. you got to try and find a balance between sort of like general boons in the game and obviously, as Steve said, the, the battle cards and the things that are going to give you that edge in combat. Yeah, I think they could have had a bit more variety, definitely. The individual mechanics is what I like about the game. It's not the individual mechanics of what each each player does, it's the overall art. Okay, so we kind of had a discussion there about what hunters they can do. They can move around and they're trying to keep themselves up because they're trying to find Dracula and confront him. So we'll go back to how they're going to find Dracula. And as we said, if they move into a city, Dracula has been in the last six turns, they're going to discover that he's going to flip the card and they've found his trail. And they're going to be trying to work out where he's gone from there. Now, Dracula has a whole deck of cards, one card for each location on the board, and he lays them down and they just roll downwards. The trail, the hunt, finding his scent, chasing after him, this is the production part of the game where you're trying to read your opponents. Sean... The trial, how did it work for Dracula? How did it work for the Hunters? Did you enjoy that as a mechanism? I did, I did. I, I like the fact that uh, Dracula's recent locations were, were hot and obviously the gossiping was still in full flow. So that's obviously where he's been recently. And that, I like that mechanic and makes thematic sense to me. It's it's the nice reveal. It's that nice moment of excitement. I, I say it a lot. And it's, it's a little moment of theatre within the game itself. I actually like the mechanic and I like the trail. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good way of handling um, the hidden movement aspect of the game. Whilst it does come, the, the game does come with a little map for Dracula to look at. That's just so that he doesn't give away, doesn't give any clues to the... Um, hunters by looking at the main board when he's planning his moves but putting the cards down on the trail is a good way of handling hidden movement rather than i don't know marking things on a map which i think some hidden movement games do the thing is in one of the games i played there's a card which the hunters got which forced dracula to reveal a sea location and since he was at sea it meant that they immediately pinpointed him for dracula that's pretty harsh because there's nothing you can do to mitigate that it's just they've drawn that card bad luck sorry to jump in there steve so don't you feel that when dracula is at sea it's quite easy for him to get away and to land somewhere completely different the sea movements are are much broader strokes than on land i feel like even though you might track him down and say he's definitely at sea i think it's it's easier for him to maybe get away just, just to say that it does cost him health to go to sea yeah, it so, does. Uh, you know, it is, it is an important decision to him. I think if Dracula's been wandering around scot free and he takes to sea, it's easy, a bit easier. If he's taken a little bit of a, of a kick in, then suddenly he's on a risky uh, ground. Then. The thing is, though, about going to sea, you're right, Sean, it's a broad stroke, but you, because you, the way the trail works is you have one card for every location, including the seas. So you put whichever sea you're in that's down on your trail. You can't go back into that sea, you've got to move on. So once they know where you are, They've got a pretty good idea where you're going to be on your following turns. 
particularly in the case I'm talking about, they knew where I was. I mean, there was no way around it. And so if I continue moving at sea, they're going to know which sea I'm in. So it, then it means when I make landfall, there's only one or two locations I could be in because there's only one or two ports. I don't want to go into too much detail. It was interesting. They thought I was somewhere else, but that card pinpointed me. And so then it wasn't quite so much fun for me then. <laughs> I like the way the trail works I like the fact that you can't double back within those six I understand the point you're saying about at sea it kind of works me that you're going in one direction at sea you're not going to double back again because if you were able to instantly double back it can create real frustration for any of the hunters in a hunting game especially because there's quite a lot of locations here but but the card you're talking about that pins points you exactly at sea yeah I, I might agree with you it's called the money trail I might agree with you on that one that I'm, I'm not sure that that's great although on the other side if you're able to take to sea and let's say you went into the south atlantic and you had a couple of different ways you can go suddenly that becomes really difficult because you could land in any port and and your trail has gone completely dry and and a lot of work you know, two hours work from the hunters has gone nowhere it's, it's a difficult balance to find now you mentioned using hide there on the trail for dracula because this is part of what gets him out of certain situations I believe they're an optional rule that you, that you don't necessarily start in the learning game that Fantasy Flight presents to you. How important are the movement cards, Steve? The special cards? Does it really work for Dracula without them in? I played two games as Dracula. In the first game, it was my first game, and so they recommend that you don't use these five special cards. I think that's an absolute mistake because that means literally all that Dracula can do is move from city to city or from city to sea, and that's it. So if he gets cornered, he's got no means of tricking the hunters or of doing some clever maneuvers there's nothing he can do he's either going to have to fight them or perhaps if he's in the in the right location escape to sea yeah i think those cards should be in right from the beginning so if you're planning on playing this game please include those five cards in your first game because they're not really very complicated and they give dracula far more options and make his game far more interesting yeah i agree absolutely 100 percent with you steve i played as the rule book stipulated without those cards in my first game and it wasn't nearly as interesting as my second game not nearly as interesting as you said yourself mate when dracula gets cornered and eventually gets caught then it, it changes the whole feel of the game and what the game's about the game's about tracking dracula down yeah you've got to drive a stake through his heart when you do that and that should be a part of the game but once you've tracked him without those cards yeah he can only just go from one city to, to another city and if you're playing well with those four hunters then you're always going to be able to track him within one or two movements and and then you boys both said it they're not complicated cards it's like hide which means you don't move for a turn or wolf form which means you can move two cities rather than one they're not huge game changes in terms of mechanisms they're simple like the ones in letters of Whitechapel chapel aren't they they're like the carriage where you can so anyone who had uh, about 21 minutes on Let's Watch I've mentioned from Sean for a few of Dracula <laughs> your, your numbers are up you've won the prize I was trying to save it till the end but I thought, I thought it was a pertinent point and also the, the escape through the alley as well which is a, it's just a simple token you can play we, everyone knows you've played it but they don't know where you've gone and it's a very simple mechanic and it makes a lot I don't understand why they suggest leaving those out I just don't understand it Dracula's not, no, it's I not, don't Dracula's either. game's not complicated really and they really help make it interesting for him and for the hunters me neither now in terms of Dracula's movement because it really is the key to the whole game 
the map in itself is definitely designed in certain ways. There are bottlenecks. There's bottlenecks in Central Europe where you have to go through, it's either Prague or Sarajevo to get out of an area. There's bottlenecks at the Pyrenees. All of Italy is a bit of a trap. How does that map work for Dracula Sean? How aware has he got to be of it? Do you think that's interesting that once the hunts have him in a certain area, he, he's limited in his options? How, how wide open should it be? I think it has to be along those lines. I think maybe somewhere, as you say, maybe be Italy around that area, it's a bit too much. But I think there has to be traps. Because if it was too open, then he'd just skip away every time and wear that clock down until he becomes more powerful and starts eking out those victory points. So I don't know if there could be a little bit more tweaking done to the map, but I think it's, it's along those lines. It's getting towards being correct. Yeah, I think it's probably about right. I mean, certainly when I played Dracula, and in both of those games, I was discovered fairly early. Uh, one just by random chance. Once again, one of those cards, one of the hunter's cards is scouts, and it lets them name two cities on the board. And Dracula has to reveal himself if he's in one of those cities. And like on turn two of my first game, they drew that card and just guessed, and they uncovered my location. Once they uncover your location, then particularly in that game when there's no special cards, it's just, it was like Benny Hill. It's like Dracula's running around the map and they're all chasing after him and then he goes to sea and they're... Tra- it was literally like the fury of Benny. So in that sense, the map didn't matter. When I play it when my, in my second game, when I had those other cards, then there was some, you know, there was some exciting moments for me then. But you're right, the map is designed in such a way that it means that Dracula can get you know, cornered or he has to make a risky move, maybe use his wolf power to skip through. So, yeah, I think it's pretty well done. Nice. Okay. So we've, we've talked a long way there about the hunt for Dracula. Now, when you actually catch Dracula, you have to fight him and the combat works exactly the same if you catch one of the minor vampires that Dracula has left as an ambush for you. Each of the hunters is going to draw three separate generic cards, punch, dodge, and escape, and then they can be able to use some of their items if they've got the combat symbols on them. And then Dracula's going to draw a hand of six cards from a deck. Now, both sets of cards have got a banner down the left-hand side with symbols on them, and the hunters are trying to anticipate what sort of card Dracula's going to play. If it's a clause, he's got a hand on it, and they're trying to play a counter card, which if that has the same symbol as Dracula's played on it, it's going to cancel his card and allow their card to take effect. If they don't play a counter card, Dracula's card will take effect first, and then they may or may not get to play their card, depending on what happens. There's a lack of mesmerise where Dracula can weaken the, the hunter, there's claws where he can damage them, there's fangs where he might actually bite them, and could possibly with a couple of bites usually put them out of the game for a short while into a hospital, the whole combat mechanism has been changed for this edition they've gone with this card play where you're supposed to be able to try and anticipate what the other player is trying to do how does it work steve it's a nice idea because it theoretically means the combats are going to be over quickly you know you simply play the cards compare the icons and then resolve the effect so you know it means combat's fairly quick although when you're fighting dracula it can go on for six rounds but I'm not really sure how much uh, real choice... It's basically guessing. I mean, certainly when I'm playing it, I'm just thinking, which card would I like to happen? I'll play that card. There's not very much of thinking, well, he's going to think I'm going to play that card, so I'll play a different card, or maybe I won't, I'll play this card, because, you know, there's, there's not really much of that going on. I think that's what they hoped would happen. There's not really much to it. It kind of stalls the game. The game stops while you do the combat, and... Hmm, 
whilst the outcome of the combat m might be interesting to everybody, I, I'm not necessarily sure that the rest of the combat, you know, choosing your cards and playing them is particularly exciting. I'm going to concur with there, Steve. I think that the combat isn't the greatest. I agree that they had to do something because, for what I believe in the second edition, it really would take uh, quite some time and there'd be dice rolls and it'd be completely random who wins the, wins the battle and... Yeah, they needed to streamline it somehow. Whether they've achieved that, I'm not sure. I think it is quick enough and it gets out of the way quickly enough, as I said in the last episode, that it's not too much of a distraction and a detraction from the game. But I think there must be a way out there doing this slightly better. First couple of plays of the cards, they can be quite random, but I think once you learn what the hunters have got in their hands in, in subsequent battles then you kind of know what they're going to be coming at you with and try and sort of guess which way they're going to play those cards. But yeah, it's not not great system. Not great system. I know you're saying they streamlined it and they reduced the time a bit. I still think it's a tiny bit too long. There's a definite situation here with four hunters where, let's say Dracula gets discovered over in Eastern Europe and you're standing in Madrid and you've got 10 turns just to get across Europe to try and get to him and then combat occurs in the middle and it completely shuts the game down and you've really got no input on it and not really much comment because it is kind it's not random exactly but it's quite swingy what can happen a, a, a misjudgment of a card or, or not guessing the right symbol can be four damage to me or five damage to dracula you know a nine damage swing in a game where nine damage is as much as some hunters have it, or one card play and you kind of remove from it a bit if you're that other hunter out of it so i would have liked it to be streamline further while retaining some brains to it i think there's no brains to it and it still takes a while one or the other for me in terms of combat though it's clear that for the hunters to win a very good strategy is to get more than one on dracula because when we're talking about the card and counterplay there dracula can only counter one hunter at a time and in effect if you've got more than one hunter in the space the other hunters are getting free digs at him in this case, our hunter's purely expendable. The way to win is just to drain Dracula of health. Just hit him, make him go to sea, get him worn down, keep the punches going to get rid of that 15 health. Are they purely expendable, Sean, given that you can do supply at the end of each day and you're going to draw back up to the cards you lose and what have you, or is there some value in keeping them alive? I think it's a game where it can get very very tight towards the end and i think any time spent having to get things back into your hand and any time spent recuperating it can really affect the final outcome of the game once you find dracula you've got to try and keep on top of him not in so much of a benny hill mode but <laughs> more more like the hounds chasing that fox just trying to stay on top of him chase him down till he's tired and beaten and battered in a corner and then drive that stake through his heart i think if you do get a good kick in from dracula you're constantly having to heal and recuperate and it's just eking out more of those turns that you're just going to need to keep on top of him so i think it does make a difference but it's not going to ruin the game one way or the other well dracula gains influence for defeating a hunter and obviously that's what Dracula's aim is, to get 13 influence. And as the game progresses, the amount of influence that Dracula gets for defeating a hunter increases. After the first week, it goes up by one. After the second week, it goes up by one. If the hunters have tracked Dracula down early in the game, then I think, Ronan, you're correct. 
they pretty much are expendable because even if he defeats with one of them he's only going to get two influence and if they can get a few hits on him you know early in the game like that and maybe deter him going to sea then it's definitely worth the risk I'm not sure. I mean, I think adjusting any of these amounts is going to have a, a, a big effect on the game. But I think earlier in the game, the hunters need should be more afraid of confronting Dracula, and I don't think they are. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so it's kind of a time-critical thing. Uh, early in the game, they don't mind coming across him. Late in the game, it's, it's more punishing to them, which leads us nicely on to the next couple of things we talk about, because it's all to do with time. Dracula gets more powerful as the game goes on. And if he does push it beyond that third week, he's going to win within three days, no matter what else has happened, if he stays alive and carries on moving. One of the side's goal is to extend this game to make it as long as possible, because that's their best chance of winning. And I've played in games in which Dracula's made sub-optimal choices to make the game fun, but knowing that they're reducing their chances of winning. Can that possibly be considered good design if my goal is just to string this whole thing out as long as possible well i think in in part that's down to the standard of the hunters because if they're not on top of you and making you make rash decisions and and you're having to flee and use your special power cards or go to sea then maybe they're not played that well but again yeah point by those special actions going to sea for dracula is to extend the game yeah, he can't turn around and confront them and pick them off or do something devastating. He's like, I've got to run, I've got to keep going. More time, more time, more rounds, I'll win in the end. For that one, you're either going to like it or don't like it. It's it's the whole mechanic of the game, as you, as you say. It's the way the game is driven. Dracula tries to stay alive as long as possible. It's whether you buy into that thematically and whether the Dracula is going to make those decisions to maybe... if people's interest is starting to wane because it is a long game they have made attempts at streamlining it so god knows how long that the first and second editions would have gone on for yeah i i see where you're coming from but to me dracula playing suboptimally would ruin the game for me i want dracula on the run i want him fleeing and i want him making those right the thing is this game is without question too long my first game this took four and a half hours now that is far too long for the amount of game in it, for the amount of decisions that you get to take. At the end of that first game, actually one of the players I had had to go home. So when it got to the end of the game, one of the other players texted him a sort of outline of what had happened. And it sounded really exciting because you can read it in 20 seconds. But when that's taken two and a half hours, it's just boring. In my second game, the, as Ronan's already mentioned, I got to a point where... I had a choice of going to sea or produce wolf form and dodge past the hunters. Now, I could have gone to sea and I would have probably made the game last another hour, maybe maybe an hour and a half, and I perhaps would have won. But I really didn't have patience for it. I was tired. Yeah, I was just tired. I was like, I don't, I don't want to go to sea and drag it out for another hour. I just want it to conclude. Steve, what was the player counts you were playing with? They were only three players, so playing two hunters each and Dracula. Right, so that that's just kicked me a square in the pills because I was going to suggest that three players is actually... So I dread to think how long this would be with five players. I mean, I, oh my God. Yeah, five players, I, I wouldn't entertain. Mate, I said earlier, imagine being the fifth <laughs> player stuck on the other side of the map while the action was happening elsewhere. I, I just, I'd literally walk away and say, look mate, you take over that character, yeah. I'm done here. 
I agree. I think five players is way too much. Four players are too much. I think with two players, there's too many to hidden cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, or, or your hunters, and you're, you're constantly having to track. Oh, what have I got on this one? So I think I think three players is bang on. Yeah, but three players, Sean, in our it's experience, four hours plus. Yeah, four hour game, and it's one of the things I was talking about there in terms of being a hunter. You don't have a lot of choices. Once you discover the trials, a little bit of thought, but it's still going to be move one space, move one space. And Dracula is exactly the same, move a space. The extra cards give them a little bit more, but the amount of thinking and fun things I'm doing, the amount of discoveries I'm doing, compared to the play length, that's what kills it. I'll tell you what, after 90 minutes, if the game was done, I would rate this game really highly. I'd say this is fun, this is a good hunt. If they condense it down to one week, I made it work like that. Fewer spaces on the board, wherever it might be, and then there we go. I'm on that. I'm really enjoying this game. At two hours, I start getting a bit antsy. At three hours, you've lost me. In my experience, it hasn't actually gone beyond the three-hour mark, but that's because Dracula has either managed to beat up a few of the hunters or been caught himself. I enjoyed it at three-hour, three-player mark. I, I found the three-hour was about right. Maybe a little bit of the sore bottom after sitting down for that long. But I felt that was about, about bang on. We're getting dangerous close to final thoughts there, which we'll save. We've got a couple of more things to go through. And it's in terms of experience of the game outside the game itself. And to get more precise, the rule book, the ease of learning and the ease of use. Now, fantasy flight rule books are one of our favourite topics. We come back to them again and again and again. This is one of their newer style two rule book setups whereby you've got a learn to play book and you've got a reference book. Oh, I'm, I'm almost wary which one to throw this to first. Let's go, Steve. So I bought a copy of the games. I was the one who, who read the rules and explained the game. Initially, when I first read through the rule book, I thought, okay, maybe this is maybe this is quite cool what they've done with the putting the reference. But it really isn't because when you sit down to play it and explain it to people, we've already said it's a long game. The last thing you want to do is to say, well, I, I can tell you a sort of outline of the way all the progress of each round's going to go, but when we get to any detail, I've got to pull out the reference book and have a read of that and find out what happens. And there are things which are in the reference book only which should be written on the cards. For example, when the hunters fight one of Dracula's vampires, the vampire is allowed to escape after three rounds. But that should be on the card. What's the point of having cards when... They don't tell you all the information that you need. So in the first game, you're like, oh, I don't know. Can, can I escape? I'm not sure. We better get the rule book out. Then, okay, it's in alphabetical order, so you can probably track it down pretty quickly. But I really can't stand sitting down to play a game and having to keep pulling the rule book out. So I tried to make sure that I knew all the rules, but that is a pain in the ass because you read through the how to play and you kind of go, okay, I've got a broad idea. Now, to actually know how to play it, I've now got to read through the rules in alphabetical order just to see what all the rules are, and that's not an easy way to learn rules. I think it's fine to have a reference book, but all the rules should be in the Learn to Play book as well. I actually thought it wasn't too bad. I've been among those banging heads off tables and scratching out eyeballs with reading fantasy flight rulebooks in the past. But this one, I I don't know. I just seemed to get on with it. I found it the main rule book easy to learn the basics of the game. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. They should have had things like that because that's a fundamental basic of the game. 
when there was a question I was easily able to reference it and I, I didn't find it a hindrance maybe it's just well I'm weighing it up against other fantasy flight rule books where I've just not been able to learn the game I've just had to sort of crack in and hope for the best this one I think was was a step up for them well <laughs> yeah I'm I'm not a fan of these rule books that don't teach you the rules I have to agree with you guys and I don't think there's enough exceptions in here to, to warrant the split of the rule book I can understand it in more complicated games I think they've got the balance wrong in that it's not just edge cases in the rules reference it's actual fundamental rules I agree with Steve about the need to, to have information on cards if you're going to have cards and make them truly properly functional and again with this game because it should be about experience and about the tension every time you've got to stop for three or four minutes to look rules up and then discuss the rule and then come to an agreement on how that rule works it breaks the tension and it's usually going to be one hunter and dracula possibly involved so what are the other three hunters going to be doing in terms of running the game and being aware of all the rules and being the person, you know, we've all done it where you're the person teaching a game, so you're the one expected to make it fun for the other people and know the answer to all the questions. And you can feel their disappointment when you don't. And this sort of rulebook setup is almost designed to make it so you don't have all the answers until you've played the game ten times and come across all the situations. And so, therefore, it's one of Steve's, I'm not going to steal his phrase, but Steve, what do you get from this game? Fantasy Flight Fatigue. I love it. You're going to coin that, Yeah, because you? it's that absolute, that management of it where you've got like, okay, I mean, particularly if you play this as a two-player game and one person's running four hunters and they've got to keep track of each hunter can have three cards, one of them can have four cards. I mean, how many cards have you got to keep track of? The fantasy flight games are, are guilty of this always and you get, you get tired. Uh, not only is this a long game, which is going to get you tired anyway, but I've played... You know, I think I played a game of Terra Mystica, which went for four hours. It was the first game, but all the way through, it was interesting decisions. The whole, you know, I was engaged. Whereas with this, the actual amount of engagement is stretched extremely thinly, and the reason that you get tired is because you're just trying to keep everything on track. We're kind of agreeing on this episode, but I think <laughs> we've got completely opposite views of the game. The overheads are just a little bit too much sometimes, and mostly with Fantasy Flight, they just don't seem to make things simple for you. They always have to work a little bit harder to get under the skin of their games, if you like. So, yeah, I agree. I agree, but um, some games are worth mm. it and some aren't. Oh, that leads us in nicely <laughs> to your final thoughts on Fury of Dracula. Steve, let us have it. Well, listen, I owned a copy of the original game from 1987, and it wasn't a copy that I bought subsequent to 1987 it was a copy i bought in 1987 when i got this third edition i wanted to like it you know i like the look of it you know it looks fantastic i like the idea of the theme it could be a great game to introduce new players to people who haven't played many games before because what the hunters do is quite simple the theme is quite rich uh, it makes sense you know you're tracing dracula across europe you're trying to track him down and kill him the rules aren't that complicated for them once you've got them out of the rule book you know with the little exceptions and so on but the actual basic rules are fairly simple but my sister occasionally will play games with me and this and she'd love this theme but I couldn't sit her down and play a game with her that might go on for four hours because she just wouldn't want to sit through it so I am very sad to have to say that I'm probably going to have to uh, trade this away I regret it but it just won't see any play I, I, I couldn't 
put it on the table with a clear conscience, knowing that people might have to sit through four hours of it, I would have to say for me that this is uh, getting traded. Well, I think I'm going to be sandwiched between the naysayers here. And it took me, it, I only mentioned it twice. This is my second mention. <laughs> Defensive. As you all know, <laughs> I love Letters from Whitechapel. The only thing I wished that I could do with Letters from Whitechapel is add a few more actions to the players. Letters from Whitechapel is a straight up, you're chasing down the killer in, in that sense. So what I wanted from a game like this was a few more actions, maybe have a little fight and still keep that highly thematic sense of the game. And Fury Dracula delivers that to me. Yes, I agree, it can go a bit long. My games have been pretty much spot on, maybe I've been lucky. I was frightened about actually introducing this to Ronan before he actually played it with Steve and, and subsequent plays that he's had because I see the flaws in it and I can see that it can be frustrating, it can be long and it can be even boring to some people. I think you have to completely buy into it. You have to buy into the thrill of the chase. You start off with the air of mystery. Where is Dracula? Where is he hiding? Then it's the thrill of the chase once the trail begins to hot up. And then you've got the combat. Can we kill him before he gets too powerful? Is he going to kill us? Are you also collecting equipment? Let's get the right equipment. Use our powers. Work together as a team. All of that. Absolutely love it. And you have to be completely bought into the game. If that buy-in wavers at all, then you're just going to find it a boring, mundane experience. I bought into it. I really enjoy the game. I can see all the flaws. I... I completely see the the triple f the fantasy flight fatigue as steve has coined i absolutely see that happening all through this game but the charm the excitement the air of mystery the thrill of the chase all of that makes me like the game and it will stay in my collection see sean you've made it sound really exciting and it is for the first hour or maybe for the first hour and a half and then it just you know it doesn't conclude and it should <laughs> maybe my staying power is just a bit better than yours Steve <laughs> you got the stamina for the fight <laughs> good god wow I'm really torn guys there's lots to enjoy in the game I think I'm just Steve kind of summed it up for me it, it just needs to be quicker that's all if just shaved off a bit of time and I think we could shave it off by being more familiar with the game but a lot of the fun is in the slow parts, in the deduction, in the conversation, in the trying to work out what's going on. The problem is it then could take 45 minutes for you to kind of do your tracking down and realise which of the threads you're following were right, if any of them. The fact that Dracula can then take to see and reset what you've done it can be really frustrating. The fact that hunting gets stuck out for the action for ages can be really frustrating. And I just think it shows a few of the trappings off its lineage and not in a good way. What I really feel like I've done here is taken Eldritch Horror as a massive influence and tried to turn Fear of Dracula into an Eldritch Horror-like game. There's lots of similarities in it. There's the encounters, there's the supply, there's the travelling around. I just don't think it's got the variety in there off Eldritch Horror. I don't think it's got the quick flow to it because you're playing against someone rather than the game and there necessarily has to be some, some talking and thinking and that kind of moribunds it a bit and all the way through do you know I was thinking I'd rather be playing Letters from Whitechapel 
there you go, there's my mention. Or I'd rather be playing Eldritch Horror. If I want a hunt game that's from Whitechapel, if I want the thematic travel around the board, see what happens, have some fun game, I'll go Eldritch Horror. It, it doesn't fit in either niche. It's half and half, and it doesn't do either well enough for me. And I'm gutted, but you know what? I'm not as negative as Steve. I would play it again, but what I said, it would. it's kind of a game I'd play on a gaming holiday have a couple of beers and play it after dinner or on on a nice sort of relaxing occasion where there's no rush everyone's chilling out i wouldn't like to make it the center of a game night because i don't think there's enough there yeah i think you're right no i agree ron and i was actually going to suggest that to you sort of a a game with a few beers going on everyone having a bit of crack and Although I say get into the theme of it, you don't take it too seriously. So you can sort of go away from the table, buy around the drinks, come back, and nothing that much is going to be changed. So yeah, from from that aspect, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's the kind of atmosphere you need. Well, for this I game. don't have a uh, hidden movement game. This is the only one I've got, and I, and I'm not a fan of Letters from Whitechapel, which I think is far too dry. But um, <laughs> there is a game. There is a game coming out called Last Friday. And uh, I, I came across it today, and it's not even on the geek yet. But it's it's based on the slasher movies, you know, those slasher movies like Scream and stuff. And I think the uh, antagonist in that is actually trying to kill the other players. So it's going to mean he's going to engage with them rather than running away, which is what happens in this game. So I, I don't know that that one might be quite interesting. Keep my eyes on it open. The other one, Steve, that they really sort of compare with this one, you get a lot of it on uh, Board Game Geek, is Spectre Ops, right. which I haven't actually played. But uh, a lot of people do compare yeah. that one to uh, Fury yeah. Dracula. It's a tricky genre to get right because by the very nature of it, it's quite thinky and slow and yet you need to take some time to reveal what you're doing and there's not necessarily that much to do because has anyone done it differently than I'm moving around the place somewhere, you're jumping on spots trying to find me and once you get a bit of information, you're going forward from there. Has anyone done a smarter version of that? Not that I can think of, but as I said... No, yeah, that silent spoke volume, yeah, didn't that, it? Uh, I, I, I almost feel like the hidden movement genre needs a leap forward. We're kind of rehashing the same ideas again with slightly different tweaks, slightly different powers, slightly different milieu. There's cleverer ways of doing this. There's a lot of game systems and game mechanisms that have been streamlined and taken down from four hours to 90 minutes and they've lost nothing good in it. I don't think the leap forward has come in this hidden movement genre and i think it's waiting there somewhere i mean i haven't played specter ops so i couldn't say how that plays but i'm interested to see this last friday thing cool we'll keep an eye out for that right thank you very much steve thank you very much sean thanks everyone for listening to our very long review of fury of dracula third edition and we'll be seeing you out next Okay, there we go. That's 57 in the bag, and it's gone long again, Ronan, but really happy to have Steve on board for that. Okay, can you hear my air quotes? New, shorter format. (laughs) (laughs) We'll work on that, folks. Let us know if you like the big, long review of Fury Dracula, or would you like to see something snappier, if you like the new section. But most of all, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. It's been my pleasure. I wish I'd known we were trying to do something brief. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i might have shut up a bit for for waffling on (laughs) thank you for bringing some sense to the podcast uh thank you sean for being 
quite literally my co-host. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Roly. <laughs> and catch us next time on the Game Pit for more gaming discussions. Sean, see us out. And as always, you can find us on the Dice Tower Network along with a whole host of fantastic gaming podcasts. You can find us on 2d6.org with audio, written and visual gaming goodness. If you want to email us, we are at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, so pop along there and like us. We have a Twitter account, and we're always tweeting about the games we play and the various gaming subjects, so come along there. And we've also got a board game geek guild, and we love to have discussions on there. So if you have a question, an idea for the show, or anything, just pop along there and put it to us. We can also be found on iTunes and newly on Stitcher. Music by Aaron. <laughs> <laughs>